if you listen to enough of this podcast, you might be concerned that we're approaching a major collapse of governments, financial markets, or even the Western developed world in its entirety. So when the revolution comes, do you want to be out of shape and unable to defend yourself? Or do you want to be fighting fit? Why not try Fight Camp? Fight Camp is interactive at-home boxing. They bring the best workout in the world into your home and make it fun. Explore thousands of workouts led by expert trainers with decades of experience teaching proper boxing form and technique. Fight Camp has live punch counting stats that motivate you by counting every punch throughout your workout and pushing you to meet goals every single round. As you progress, you'll unlock achievements and can go head-to-head against other members, whether they're across the country or across your living room. One of the best things about Fight Camp is that it makes boxing accessible to everyone, no matter what fitness level you're at, what your age is, or what your experience with boxing is, you can do it. And you're going to have a great time as well. So join the biggest boxing community in the world without ever leaving your home. Fight Camp packages start at just $99. They either offer some great financing options, so you can get started for just $9 a month. To get everything you need, go to fightcamp.com forward slash chatter to learn more. That's fightcamp.com forward slash chatter. C-H-A-T-T-E-R. Um, so, uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. John A. King and Melissa King. Uh, John is an author, poet, longtime activist, and the founder of Give Them a Voice Foundation in Texas. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Melissa as well. Hey, g'day, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Can't complain too much. I mean, the country is just about holding together, so we... We can solve all the world problems today, mate. Well, that's that's a good start. Um, hopefully, the right people are listening. Um, so I yeah, I first came across your work um, after I'd seen uh, like a little clip of you on Twitter actually talking about about PTSD, um, and then yeah, you were kind enough to link some of your other stuff, which which I uh, yeah was was blown away by. Um, and as I mentioned, like there's a friend of mine that I know who has um, well is recovered from ptsd i don't know if you'd say cured i don't actually know the terminology um maybe you can, maybe you can enlighten me but uh like for people who don't quite like know what exactly ptsd is um and probably for for me as well um to get like the best grasp on exactly what it is like how would you go about describing it to someone um well ptsd um post-traumatic stress disorder so post-traumatic stress is the stress that happens after a traumatic event. So that's PTS. And we all experience PTS. You have a car accident, um, you stub your toe, you break your arm, you fall off your skateboard, whatever it is, and there's a, there's a trauma that happens, a stress that happens post-stress. Um, and normally it's gone in about six weeks. Now, PTSD or disorder um, is, is something that continues after six months. And when there's recall of events, there's intrusive thoughts and intrusive memories an inability to be able to reconcile things emotionally. Um, and then there's a third one in the same bucket, it, it, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And complex post-traumatic stress is more tied into childhood sexual abuse, um, being kidnapped, detained for a long period, um, wrongly for a long period of time. So they're really the, the three things that sort of fall in this, in this uh, you know, little bucket. Hmm. Like what's the what's the most common trigger then for for PTSD? Is it is it like military conflict or is it is it as you were saying the the child sexual trauma? It's not. Um, so one of the misconceptions about PTSD is it's a military thing. 
It's not. It's it's anything. Anyone can have PTSD. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a result of a traumatic event. If someone was raped, um, burgled in their house, um, assaulted, uh, a major car accident, a house fire. I've got a doctor friend who had a house fire when he was a young child. Was trapped in his bedroom and still ha- and has major challenges still dealing with it. So the root of it really is a physiological change in the body. So it's a physiological change that happened in the brain as the result of a trauma. And that trauma can be any, you know, war-related or not. It can be any type of trauma. So, like, how how prevalent is PTSD? Like, what percentage of the population are you looking at that, that has it then? It's about 6% um, will experience PTSD in some form in their life. Now, a lot of people will experience trauma um, but not everyone is going to have a response to trauma that lasts more than six months, an uncontrolled response to trauma. And, you know, I think that's, you know, that's, that's part of it. Unfortunately, we've got a society at the moment which loves to label, people love to label themselves as a victim of something. Mm. And that's one of the things that's really annoying. Um, you know, I heard, I heard a Hollywood actress talk about how um, she had PTSD because a dog sitter was late to mind a dog while she went off to have her nails done. It's like, are you serious? And you need to smack in the mouth or say, it's just ridiculous. There's this minimising of the thing. PTSD is not something you want. It's not something you want to identify with. And it's certainly something you don't want to, you know, um, belittle or misuse. It's it's a major a mental issue um, which has major ramifications. And, um, and as I said, you know, life is traumatic. But being a victim is a matter of choice. You know, we either allow our life to define us or refine us. And I think when it comes to things like PTSD, a lot of it goes undiagnosed, undiagnosed because people don't want to talk about it or can't feel they can talk about it. And um, they don't know how to get their head around it because it, it's got these series of misconceptions about it. But, you know, anyone who has been in a traumatic situation can get PTSD. So then... What what percentage is going undiagnosed? Um, do you think? Oh, I don't know, mate. Um, that's that, that's very hard to identify um, because if six percent of population are getting in the USA, that's twelve million cases uh, people will have on an annual basis, and some people will get, as I said, a traffic ex- accident or something. They'll have post traumatic stress for a period of time, and then they'll. Um, then, then they'll move on and develop coping mechanisms for, for what the, whatever they're doing. So I, I don't know how much is um, – there's, there's a range of figures for it, um, but, but a lot of that is – part of that is grant funding padding and part of it is, <laughs> you know, people not being uh, aware of what's really going on in their lives. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult. I've been making stuff up like the rest of them. <laughs> I think, too, a lot of times you have it along with something else. So if someone is um, already abusing substances, for example, um, they may put themselves in a situation where they are going to experience trauma, like being trafficked or, or, you know, something that goes on, sits alongside it. And so I think because they already had one diagnosis of, you know, um, being addicted to drugs, then the PTSD would go undiagnosed because... And, and even the other way, like they could end up having tra- tra- trauma and end up abusing drugs because one of the signs of PTSD is extreme risky behaviour. 
and they end up abusing drugs and they never get to unpack what happened here. And we do a lot of work with veterans and a lot of our, our Tier 1 veterans, uh, a, a lot of them, over 50% of them, I'd say, have had extreme childhood abuse, um, physical or sexual. And they go off and they didn't enroll in the military because no one's got, ever going to hurt them or theirs again. And they, they have end up with a diagnosis for military PTSD, but the root of it is actually childhood trauma. And the challenge is that you can't treat this fruit without identifying this tree. Mm. And they can't admit to having a childhood issue because that's a pre-existing condition. And in America, that means you lose all your, your benefits as a veteran. Wow. And it's the same with police. So there's these masses of people out there with, with root issues that aren't being treated because they can't have conversations with people about it. Wow. So like the the so say they got diagnosed with with PTSD after after coming back from from a tour in like Afghanistan or Iraq or or somewhere like that, and then they came back and they they went to get therapy or, or some sort of uh, treatment for, for PTSD, right? And then it was discovered, I don't know how you'd even use, like it uncovered in therapy that, that this is something deeper that was like not because of the military. And as a result of that, they would lose coverage and not be able to get the treatment. They'd lose all their medical benefits. They'd lose their pension. They'd lose everything. Holy shit. And you think of it like in Ireland, 60% of the Guardi there have um, PTSD. So it's a conversation Europe's more prepared to have than, than that we're prepared to have in America. Uh, Britain and Europe, are so, particularly Ireland, is a lot further down the track in having grown up conversations about mental health than um, the American facade around these areas. Mm. It's just, it's, it's absolutely, it's really odd to us. We, because we run a nonprofit, we help people regardless of the root of their trauma. And we, you know, so they, a lot of times will feel more free talking to John and recovery coaching uh, than they would, you know, if they're seeing a therapist or anything. And, and we would say, go to the VA and you can get this, um, you can get treatment for these things. You just no, it can't tell the VA about it. Therefore, they don't have access to the medications or the therapies or the support groups. And if they go to their PTSD group uh, based around military stuff, they can't bring up any of the other. So it's, it's a dishonest therapeutic approach, which just isn't going to work. just doesn't work. Yeah, that's awful. That's yeah, it really, is. That's, horrible, that's really, I had no idea. Like, because, you know, I kind of understood the, the situation with pre-existing conditions, but I didn't realize it was like even the, like your trauma could could be discounted because it didn't happen at the right time, almost. Yeah, and, and it's and if you think about it, childhood trauma, childhood trauma in men is not something we're prepared to discuss. Um, we, we have a culture where we can talk about childhood trauma amongst amongst women. Um, you know, consider the dining room table and someone say, oh, "I was abused," or "This happened to me," and they go, "Well, there, there, good. Let's talk about that." But if a guy says, oh, "I was raped by my mother," it's the end of the dinner conversation, and everyone thinks you're a freak. And that's been my story and my experience. And especially when 45% of perpetrators are female and at least 50% of people who are abused are male. And if they're tra we're talking trafficking in some areas of the world, as high as 75 and 80% of trafficking victims are male. So you can't have these conversations because if the statistics run the other way and it's like 15% or 20%, then 
for, for, for a man to put up his hand and say, I was sexually abused and this is affecting how I'm performing my job, you've become a very small part of a very tiny minority and you feel you've got no ability to have a conversational support. Mm. But the numbers are so much greater than that that if, if we would have honest conversations, then there would be, you know, overwhelming support for people to be able to get hold. And that really has to be the aim. And unfortunately, any military or, or even a police institution, they just want to get boots back on the ground and out the door and into the battlefield. There's not this sense of you can do that still, but it may take a little longer because we've got to unpack some crap that's driving that um, in order to get there. Yeah. And that's so sad as well. That, like the people who, like if they, if they wanted the most effective force in whatever sense, they'd, they'd want them to be as mentally... What you say? How did you put it? Mentally whole as possible. Yeah, mentally whole. And yeah, exactly. Exa- and aware. The, the, one of the misnomers with PTSD. There's a term um, called going postal. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Postal. So Do you want to explain of, that for people that for, from the UK that don't? I just I've heard some of it before. There was a there was a case of a postal worker who um, got pissed off at work a little bit. Like I don't like Mondays. The the, the song by yeah. you know, so what's his name. And um, so they go into a post office and just start, this guy starts killing people. And it became a, you know, a cultural, uh, you know, term, got to go postal. Mm. And my favourite T-shirt is PTSD does not equal postal. And because it gets a lot of response and reactions and people think that someone with PTSD wants to lose their, sh- their shit. They want everything to fall apart. And it's exactly the opposite. Or that they're going to. Yeah. You know, people have treated John like a sort of ticking time bomb, you know, because they know about his PTSD diagnosis. And, and it's exactly the opposite because people who are aware of PTSD, they're aware that they're prone to get, um, and the terms become a horrible cultural thing now, triggered. Um, it seems to have lost its meaning. That mm. they're aware that they're things that could trigger them in the environment and they actually want to stay in control. And so it's exactly the opposite. People who have PTSD want more control over their life because most days they feel they're out of control. And, um, you know, they're more likely to put themselves in danger or to take longer or to be longer in asking for help um, in a, in a live fire situation because they want to prove to everyone else that they've, they can make it happen, that they're normal. Mm-hmm. And that drives another cycle of risky behaviour that's a big part of PTSD, constantly having to prove and put yourself out in front. Um, and that cycle itself um, is is dangerous, particularly in a military or a police situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what, what are the, you've mentioned like a couple of th- like misunderstandings people have about PTSD. Like what would you say are the biggest like misconceptions that people have about it? Like for, so like from my perspective, like it's, it's, and you'll definitely correct me on this, but like from, <laughs> From my perspective, it's like, okay, someone goes through some sort of trauma, either, as you mentioned, like in childhood or like something, uh, yeah, in adulthood. And then sometime down the line, they're, I don't know, sort of getting, well, yeah, to use the wrong word, but triggered by like, I don't know, things that that give them like flashbacks or, or, or reminders right. of, of the they're event. The right words. They're just misused. Um, but they, they, they are the right words. So, um, so, so PTSD isn't just a military thing. Uh, PTSD can happen to anyone. Um, there, there is 
There is not a one-size-fits-all recovery program for people with PTSD. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line of it is that you've got to take personal responsibility. And, and everyone has had a, a traumatic situation. I, I've got some men. I, I've got one friend in particular. He's a, an Army Special Forces Green Beret, been the, the tip of the spear for the last however many decades of engagements. Zero PTSD whatsoever. He doesn't, he doesn't have it. He hasn't got a diagnosis, nothing. Um, and because he just processes, he's, about, he's able to process memories and events differently. And it, it really isn't um, occupationally based. It's experientially and personally based. Is how, how is your brain able to reconcile these things that are happening? And a lot of it's to do with culture. Um, ethics, moral, spirituality, belief structures as to why you're engaged in a particular activity. Um, and a lot of that is built on how you're reared as a child. So you can see this is a series of building blocks. And if you get up here and you don't have a substructure to support that, then the whole thing collapses. So you use the word like uh, personal responsibility, like you've got to take personal responsibility. And that is not a term that is thrown around when it comes to conversations about mental health that often that no. is i've seen that there's there's a lot of sort of talk in the personal responsibility space but that 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 rarely sort of crosses over into dealing with mental health issues because the the understanding or the the general narrative would be it's not your fault that you have this problem and therefore you shouldn't need to take responsibility because it's like, yeah, it's, it's not your fault basically. So, so why do you use that term? Not your fault. You were a victim. Um, I know I signed up for the military, but I didn't know the impact it was going to have on me if I killed someone. It's like, dude, you signed up for the bloody military. I think you have to separate to the trauma from the result of the trauma. So the trauma was not your fault. Absolutely. You know, childhood abuse, you're in a war situation and you're asked to do things that are just a barn. Yeah. Something horrific happens. And so trauma is not your fault, but because there is no one size fits all recovery program for PTSD, you have to take responsibility for your own self getting better you have to be an advocate. You have to communicate. Here are the things that I think I need. I, you know, I, I really think that it, it, the recovery process. You have to take charge of that. And, um, yeah. and, and what what Mel that, that the key what Mel's saying is that there's a whole group of people in the mental health victim space that are in the victim space, not in the mental health space. They don't want to get healthy mentally. They want to extrapolate the benefits, the government, the social sympathy from being a victim. Their whole identity is tied up with this trauma event as opposed to tied up with wanting to be a better contributor to society, enjoying a better life, having a fantastic relationship. So there's only one person that can be responsible for that recovery, and that's, that's you. Yeah. And so when folks are ready to step out of that victim identity, Say I'm I'm ready to get out of this toilet swirl. I want to get better. I want to move forward. Uh, then people like us who do recovery coaching are we're actually able to help them once they're ready to move forward. Because that means they're ready to take responsibility. 
And even if it's just one new thing that I can learn today to begin my recovery journey, um, then then I'm here to help you. I can help you now because you're ready. And saying, I'm responsible for getting better. I have the ability and I can find the tools to get better. I can. Then I'm not dependent upon anybody else in my journey. I'm dependent on accessing people to as tools, books, relationships. I, I'm now in charge of getting those things with an ability to do it. It puts me in the driver's seat, whereas you flip it up to this particular point, you've probably been a victim in your own head and in the words of other people. So, you know, I was sexually abused from 4 to 16 by my mother and her friends. Okay, what my life with PTSD was a result of not what I did, but what was done to me. Okay, so that leads everything from the point of realizing what had happened and recalling that. I'm responsible for this beautiful thing that I'm crafting. And I need to take responsibility for that. And I need to be fruitful and, 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 and make this work. I can't do anything about that. But that made me who I am today. So I've got to embrace that. And now I've got to work towards wholeness. And it's in the same in any aspect of trauma. There has to be that delineation between, and I hate the word victim, but I don't know what else to say it in our, in our English. It's like I was a victim of these things that happened to me, but I am not going to be a victim of the result of those things that happened to me. I'm going to take control of, of this well, control, flow with, work with, discover, uncover the things that are going to make me a more connected, prosperous, productive human being in and for my world. One of the things John just said, discover, I I think it's really important for people to understand about PTSD because there is a physiological change in the brain. You may be an entirely new person who doesn't very much resemble the person you were before. So there could be some things that you were really good at before. Say you're a type A driven, very organized person. And now all of a sudden, uh, a switch has flipped and and you're now like an artistic person who wants to sit around and like, smoke cigars and write poetry. Smoke cigars and write poetry. And so like the the 2.0 person does not resemble 1.0. And I, so there's this uncovering process that happens in recovery where you're like, okay, well, who am I now? And what, what am I good at? And what do I like to do? And what sort of things uh, can my brain produce now that maybe I couldn't produce before. And, you know, on the other side of that is what sort of things am I not good at now that maybe I was good at before. Yeah. And, and she's, she's talking about a part of when I talk in the book, Deal With It, where we discuss this movement from 1.0 to two, John 2.0. And that was a very clear line, um, you know, left brain to right brain, uh, driven to not passive, but really just totally, totally different passions and 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 and, and that, that challenge of reconciling those two probably took 10, 15 years. So it's a long process um, if the trauma is is big enough. Mm. And you don't get a realize it or remember it or recall it till very late in life. That's gotta be so so strange to like to to to, yeah. to have this like sense of like yourself as such. And then to have like to have like the the underlying like psychological and like yeah like even physical elements that that made you that person 
huh? not there anymore to the point where the, uh, the that underlying like self is no longer there but like your vision of that self is still there yes and that's what it's he complicated had. to really explain <laughs> Let to do it. Thinking, this is who i am yeah. but now you're over here and you think i don't like that stuff or mm -hmm. well, i'm not good at that stuff anymore i'm good at these things but then this guy's saying well you can't be good at those things you've never been good at those things but i am good at those things you don't even like those things they're the only things i like now what the hell do i do with all this stuff and it's a, it's a long, very interesting, tedious, and uh, <laughs> difficult conversation to have with yourself. Yeah. Um, and it costs you. It cost me my first marriage. It cost me relationships with my kids. cost me a business. cost me a career. Because that this is reconciling. Not real, It's the accepting of John 2.0. Accepting that John 2.0 was okay, that he wasn't a failure. Um, that he had incredibly different, unique skills that John 1.0 never, never had, and that the willingness to start at 45 as opposed to starting at, you know, whenever, like zero. Thinking that, of, like, as a person, just as a typical person who doesn't undergo any trauma, like, how long does it take us to get comfortable in our skin? Like, probably till our 40s, really, we figure out who we are and we kind of, like, you know, on the on the track of like really being comfortable with ourselves, and like he had to start over at forty five. And these are the sorts of things that feed into veteran suicide, feed into suicide amongst mm -hmm. police and medical staff, because there's been this change. You were this person, but you can't do that or be that person anymore. It's like, well, then who the hell am I, and what good am I? All this skill set doesn't bring me any joy or value. And some of this skill set I can't even do anymore. So who am I? And I'm 45, 55. And this, this confusion, is this as good as it gets? And how do I rebuild? And what do I do for a career? And how do I make money and feed my family? And my wife doesn't like 2.0. And I can't make myself be 1.0. And this is a, it's a cluster, man, I'm telling you. It's an identity crisis of epic proportions. She <laughs> lived through it. It's quite, quite a midlife crisis. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, and you feel like you're five, but because everything is new and different, and you don't have words to explain it, and you've got no one to guide you. Mm. you, you there's no one. There's no models to look up to. Uh, there's no. There's very few people who have been there and done that that you can connect to. Because don't forget. You're 45 or 50 and supposed to have your shit together and your answer lined out by now. So putting your hand up and saying, you know, I'm having trouble turning up at appointments on time. It's not that I don't want to. It's just that I don't want to. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, but you've always been 10 minutes early. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I was thinking. Oh. Okay. I was thinking. I was, I was just, just I was, having a thing. I was having a think and I forgot to get out of the car or put my pants on or something, you know. Oh. <laughs> uh. Yeah, that would be so strange. Like my, for have to have that change. Like my friends are are used to like, like when I lived with them, they used to be like, okay, right, we're going somewhere, and they'd send me upstairs to my room, and then I'd uh, they'd come and find me twenty minutes later playing the guitar, not ready to go. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that was expected. That's normal. But if that was like a completely new trait, it would be like, what, what the fuck's going on? What if you were the guy that was on time and out the door? It's like, 
dude, what are you doing? You're stressing us out here, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit like that. And that's why a lot of a lot of people have a challenge, you know, coming out of the police force or coming out of the um, military or doctors because our identity, particularly as men, our identity is tied up so much in what we do. Mm. And when we can no longer do those things, um, now this will sound horrible, but people will get it. If, if I'd had cancer or if I'd had my legs amputated, it would have been easier for me and I probably would have still, you know, survived with my children and all that because they could look and go, oh, look, he's got a disability. Mm. Look at that disability. He's in cancer. He's got a sickness. But because you look like this and sound like this and people can't see it, I mean, people don't like, that's where prejudgment comes from, prejudice. They don't like what they can't see or understand. They look and they draw a range of conclusions. And then when you're unable to meet those conclusions or expectations, particularly based on past performance, then they just, you get, you get canned. Um, and they can't come to terms with that. So on the other side is the person who now is walking around with these invisible things, trying to find language for that. Um, it's like speaking only English and ending up in, in Beijing and try to communicate, you know, where's the bathroom, bro? I've got no understand what that sign is. And and the, the, you just try and get louder and louder because when you're speaking to someone of a different ethnicity, we all know that speaking loud and slow <laughs> is how you communicate. So with PTSD, you end up speaking loud and slow to try and communicate and people think you're going to go postal. So it's just a cycle of plus fuckery. Oh. <laughs> is, that, is that your own term that you've coined? Plus fuckery? Yeah, it's it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a derivative. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll for children. I think, too, because you, do, you look around and you don't see a lot of models for people who started in the middle of their life and had to rebuild. Um, I think really early on in John's recovery journey, he started putting stuff out there online so people he said at least somebody can watch me try this fail tragically or succeed sometimes that's how how we got started really just connecting with people and helping people who are in the process of recovery yeah um because there was nothing you know this is 15 years ago there was nothing written very little written on the impact of sexual childhood abuse. CPTSD had just become a term that had been acceptable alongside PTSD. There was particularly nothing written about the sexual abuse of boys, particularly, again, by female figures in their life. So you've got an absolute lack of information, and you pick up any of the books that were written, and it's like all men are bastards and pricks, and it's like, yeah, I don't want to read that crap, you know, I feel bad about myself anyway. Mm. And so there's no resources. So I ended up going back to... Um, the French Napoleonic War, and that was the start and the, and, the, and the talking about something called Soldier's Heart or, or, or Soldier's Tremors. The Civil War had a series of documents on it, and I realised that what the traits of the doctors in those two wars were talking about was something called, ended up being called something called post-traumatic stress disorder. Then I started to unpack a lot of what the military was starting to do, and we started to craft this conversation and understand that, that what we were dealing with um, this was this was the issue. And it was very early days, and I remember John drawing a bunch of bubbles on a piece of paper, and it was like depression, anxiety, and it was all the things he was dealing with. And he said, "If I can't find anything 
on complex post-traumatic stress disorder, at least I can work on one bubble at a time. And so you would go and you would do some reading about depression and what are some coping mechanisms. And then you go look at anxiety. And, um, we, we made a Venn diagram. We put the most common in there and we came up with the, you know, the 2080 rule. If I can work on 20%, that'll affect 80%, mm -hmm. then I've got the opportunity to improve the quality of my life and the life of everyone I'm connected to. So that's really... That's really how we started our journey. Mm. Like, how did you go about the, the the journey of like figuring yourself out again? Like, where did that begin? Like, where where does where does one begin upon that path? Um. Okay, so there was a couple couple of things that were. I won't bore you with too much detail. You oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> we can edit. Have, have a toilet read, brother. Sit down. And have a toilet. There's only men chapters, all of about two or three minutes long. You know, lose yourself in well, the. That's moment. ideal. Yeah, I've got a stoicism book on at the in the bathroom at the minute, which is the yeah, same. That's sort of deal. Yeah, that's it. Get rid of stuff. So, uh, so first of all, it was redefining normal, and my pressure was. Um, man, I've got to be normal because normal people do this, 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 and this. This is how normal people react. And it was the stress of being normal was just freaking me out because the more I would try to be normal, the more I realized I wasn't normal. So I redefined normal for myself. One of the things I would do is I would um, I'd set my alarm every 90 minutes to go off so I'd wake up because if I didn't, then I'd have deep recall nightmares. And this went on for five or six years of being in orgies and a range of other things. And once I got in those nightmares, I couldn't get out of them for days. It was just this cycle. So I woke myself up. I never slept past 3 o'clock because that's when the worst ones happen. So I'd wake myself up at 3 o'clock and I'd go to the gym. So for me, the reason I'm going to the gym is because I'm crazy. Okay. So then, then I'd be really tired in the afternoon and I'd, I'd have to have a nap. So the reason I was having a nap was because I'm crazy. Um, so I redefine my normal. No, I go to the gym because I enjoy going to the gym because the gym makes me healthy and the gym gives me a good mental attitude and the gym helps me cope at the end of the day. That's what my normal is. I have a nap in the afternoon because I get up at 3 a.m. in the morning and I go to the gym because I like going to the gym because that helps. And you see what I mean? So I redefine that normal. And I think that was probably the biggest thing. And, and the other one was just accepting that I would never be John 1.0 again. And going and, and having an honest conversation with myself that there was things about John 2.0 that I really actually enjoyed. And, and I was doing very well at some of those things, but I couldn't let myself celebrate doing well at it because that's not what John 1.0 did. So redefining normal, accepting John 2.0. Is there anything else you think about? Mm -hmm. Could you just could you give an example of one of those things that you were that like John two point is good at that like John one sort of like wouldn't quite like get his head around? Uh, writing, writing. I love to write. I've I've written thirteen books. Whoa. Um, um, two poetry books. Um, I'm just finishing my first fictional series. That's three volumes already. And we're going to publish all three of those. It's a crime fiction based on my life. And we've worked on a whole lot of very high-level trafficking cases, like the Epstein cases and the Peter Nygaard cases. So it's all that sort of, you know, fact for fiction type thing. And um, 
I would say John 1.0 definitely knew how to string some sentences together. He, and he published a lot of books as that guy, but they were all uh, nonfiction, you know, kind of self-help coaching, stuff like that. And so now John 2.0 is a storyteller. He's a poet. He's more, much more of an entertainer, I think, with the writing. Uh, and I think just giving yourself permission to kind of make that transition. And like when I, I was making him some business cards one day, this was early on before we were married. We just, we worked together for a long time before we got married. And I made him some business cards and I put author and poet on there. And along with, you know, the other business things he was doing at the time. And he was like, do you think I'm an author? Yes, yes, I do. You know, and one of the one of the other turning points in life was at the in Ireland, at the Writers Museum. Mm. We went into the Writers Museum, and here I am. I'm struggling to 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 work to to create. So I went from being always employed to having now to be self-employed because I was now experiencing challenges. Going out in public, being caught in an elevator, being caught on peak hour traffic, and I just have to get out of my car and walk down a freeway because I was going to totally freak out. So I got some, I got some major job things we had to work through, which makes you feel really challenged at forty-five and fifty to totally reinvent and come up with a different career. And but my passion was writing, and I felt well, if you, you know, the whole self-motivation, follow your passion, and it'll fund you. Dude, there's no way that was going to fund me. You know, it wasn't, wasn't going to happen. You know? We're going to starve. We're going to starve to death. And I was in the Writers Museum in Ireland, and I read all these famous guys, the, the great Irish poets and authors, and they all had second jobs. They were teachers. They were they were you know a range of different things. And I and I, I remember thinking, it's okay. I can do this one thing that can fund this thing. Because this thing isn't who I am. This is who I am. Mm. And it's okay to do that. And so that gave me a purpose to try, a reason to find a way to fund it. And, and the funding gave me a reason to try and discover who I was and what, and what my potential could be in this space. It was okay to have a day job. Like he walked out of the Writers Museum knowing that it was okay to have a day job. There was one guy who, who was a stonemason, you know. Yeah. And- <laughs> he's, a great, he's one of Ireland's great poets. I can't remember the guy's name. But the, the, the challenge in all of this is not getting tied up in regret because you wish that you had this happen to you when you were 20 or 30 because then by the time in 50 and 60, you'd be in a totally different career space. But here you are now at 50 with only 15 years under your, your career belt and you've got to try and manage and think about, well, what do I do and how do I go about doing it? Was, it, was the poet uh, Robinson Jeffers or James O'Hearn by any chance? James O'Hearn. There you go. I want to know who yeah. it was. And there was <laughs> another one. There's another guy who was a school teacher. Um, he was another famous one. And I, I, can't, I can't remember some of the names of the... the I should know them. I've got I've got books. That was a life changing trip, though. Absolutely life changing. Ireland, yes. Oh yeah. Oh, you're making me nostalgic for home. I'm not. Flew to Dublin, then we turned left, and that was it. That was the only rule. We had one night. We had one night there and a bed and breakfast, 
And then our rule was, this is nothing to do with your podcast, sorry. But um, <laughs> this is this creative cigar smoking poet guy just yeah, rambling. this is good. I like this. <laughs> but you're Irish, you get it. So our rule was whoever we spoke to that day, if they told us something to do the next day, that's what we did. So that was it. We just hmm. talked to local people. and Dude, we ended up in the most obscure places having the best cups of teas and scones that you could ever <laughs> on some bloody island with sheep and a, and a trolley cart going across, mate. And then we're up in some foothills where we nearly got bloody killed by the GPS because it was a bloody sheep track having vodka and gin in this brand new distillery in the back of nowhere. It was just bloody brilliant. Oh, that's my homeland. <laughs> yeah, it was just fantastic. It was just nice, mate, just wandering around, you know. Oh, I missed the air. That's the thing oh, I'm yeah, yeah, I moved yeah. to, I'm I'm living in London now. I moved here like five months ago. Um it's great and everything, but I miss the air. I yeah, can't I can't yeah. wait to return home and just step off the plane and just like drink it in. You know? I know, we wanna go we wanna go back again. We'd love to go back again. Mm. Um, I don't know what it is that makes it it's like you could smell the rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, and it was summer over there. They had this big heat wave, it was a couple of years ago. Mate, everyone had pulled their recliners out of their lounge rooms and they're all sitting on the front you know with the, their hankies on their head and their their, their white singlets and it was the funniest thing i'd ever seen it was just brilliant you need two up and two down it was just brilliant oh yeah we don't see the sun very often it's a very irish thing to when it's there we're like oh my dear goodness we have to be outside right now in the sun <laughs> we, might, we might not see it again for months like you have to take advantage of it immediately um so I was I was wondering if we could go back just like a little bit here, because um, we've talked about the 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 like the actual physiological uh, physiological change that happens in the brain with with PTSD. Like I was wondering if you could like explain a little bit more, like what what's actually happening in the brain there. So um, it's it's the brain's the way that br the brain processes memories, and um, so so when especially with things like repressed memories. Things happen, and, and the brain wants to do a couple of things. Based upon childhood experience and education and environment, your brain wants to put this experience and file it somewhere. So if you think of your brain as a filing cabinet with all these life events, and your brain is looking at, in my case, you know, being anally raped with a toy soldier because I didn't clear up my room. Okay, my brain's going, dude, I've got nowhere to place this. Like, what the hell do I, where do I file this thing? You know, it's like, so it just sits in a whole bunch of piles, like a pile of paper on your desk. So this trauma is not being able to be catalyzed like great Christmas events and things that happen, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got no way to deal with it. So, and that's when recall happens is it's like opening the window on your soul and your brain goes, just deal with it. I've got to clean up this desk and all this stuff just blows up. And that's when this recall happens and you end up trying to grab these memories and trying to do something with them and you don't know what to do with it. So when, when, when the brain is, is suppressing memories, it's actually keeping them in a file of unprocessed memories or things we don't know what to do with. Then when recall happens or an event or a trigger happens, you end up realising that you've just been walking around with these bunch of papers and now you have to do something with this. What do I do with this that happened? What, what do I do with the death of this person? What do I do with this thing that was done to me as a kid? What, what do I, what, and you've got to now... Deal, deal with this and that's when it gets difficult because you can't ever put that back down again because now it's alive and you go okay I've got to deal well how the hell do I deal with that 
you know, and it'll be the strangest things. I remember once when we were um, engaged, we walked into a candle shop, you know, one of those foo-foo places that sell, you know, new age crystals and candles and shit. So we walked in there and we did that and the smell of a particular scent of candle brought back um, a sexual event I was involved with as a child. Now, I would never have planned that. I would never have known that. But when it came back, it was so visceral. So I, I, I'm standing there and I was totally locked up and I just had to leave the store because now I have this now I have this event, this memory, this thing that I've now got to deal with. So that's what a real triggering event looks like because now you're walking around and all you can see is this piece of paper. And John didn't, when that happened, he didn't go postal. Like I think probably someone who didn't know him would never have known that he was triggered. But I saw him quickly leave the store, so I followed him out, and then he was trying to tell me what happened and he started to stutter. And so I knew immediately that he was extremely overcome, overwhelmed. If he starts to stutter, I know, you know, and so we just found a bench to sit on and I held his hand and, and it does, it takes when he would have a recall like that, it, it would take him days or weeks to sort of take that memory and, and file it, you know, what do I do with this? And so, and a lot of, we would have a lot of conversation around it. And, um, and that's one thing that people don't quite understand with PTSD. And was, this is part of some of the things that I ended up with my first marriage going bankrupt emotionally was that it's not that you're so self-consumed that all you want to do is talk about it, but you just want to talk about it because you want to solve this bloody thing. And you need to put this somewhere. And what the hell do I do with an orgy when I'm five or six? What the hell do I do it? Why would and why would people do that? And why would they allow that to happen? And and all these other things start to come up. And it's like, where do I file this? And John is a verbal processor, so he does need to have a lot of conversations. Now, I would imagine with someone else who maybe is not a verbal processor, maybe they, you know, draw or you know do art, or I I'm not sure how they would process through something like that. Um, but John definitely needs to have those conversations. So if you think of it, that's one incident and there's two or three weeks of trying to work this out. Now, if someone doesn't want to come with you on that journey, that's the death of any relationship. Or if someone's so absorbed that they really don't want to deal with it, they just want to highlight how bad their life is, then that's the death of that relationship. So, that, that yeah, I, I forget the question. I think that's answering it. So we we work with couples a lot. I will say when we're doing recovery coaching, uh, you know, it, because if you have someone in your circle who's willing to walk with you and process out these things, then we definitely want to help, you know, both people. Cause that support is key. Mm. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, it is. Especially, yeah. Especially if you're someone that needs to talk through it. Um, and and because- it feels like something you'd have to talk to. It feels like things like that would need, You'd almost need the validation of another human to yes. like, acknowledge it. Yeah. You know, and I acknowledge mean. that it happened and that it wasn't right mm. or wasn't a nice thing to happen. And for for example, if if I walked out of that shop and not coping, and Mel was selfish and self-consumed, and all of a sudden it was like, but this is my shop and my favorite, and I wanted to be, and what the hell are you doing? You're just trying to ruin my day and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you're going to, well, I'm not going to talk to you about this. And Or if you do try and talk about it, they go, oh, well, there you go, just talking about that thing that happened to you as a kid. Why can't you just get over this? 
They're not, it's, if nothing's going to work, you know. Yeah. You're either going to stay in the store because you don't want to have an argument or you're going to go, fuck you, I'm going, you know, and you move on. Yeah. So, like, the, yeah, the trigger could theoretically, triggers could theoretically be anything almost then. Like you said, it was just like a smell of a candle. And like, Random, brother. Yeah. I got a mate of mine who was, uh, you know, 30 years in blood and sand and was driving past a, um, a building site and nail guns were going boom, 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 boom. And it reminded him of something that happened in, for, for, in Afghanistan. Um, so it's just different for different people and different things. Mm. And I'm, I might go into a candle shop now and probably nothing's going to happen. Um, and it's not, it's, not, it's not just candle shops in general. <laughs> it was the combination of whatever my brain was trying to process that particular environment, my, my brain's willingness and vulnerability to or saying it's time to deal with a new one of these things instead of just putting it away. So there's all this little combination of things that make a perfect storm that, that you really need to have your tools in your toolbox ready to deal with when it happens. So like you, talk, you talked earlier about, about like there's people who can go through the most like horrific events and just sort of like they'll just they process it in in like I don't want to say the right way, but like a way in which that allows them to like deal with it essentially. Like what what's the difference between what they're doing and like how people who who then go on to experience PTSD are doing? Like what's the, um, in, the difference in military or, or at law enforcement environments? A lot of it has to do with their moral con- construct, their spiritual values, and their sense of community and wholeness. If if I'm going to war for a righteous cause. If I've had a sense of upbringing that right is right and wrong is wrong, we're going on behalf of our country in the free world to address an issue which is wrong, then you've got the weight of a nation, the weight of your family and the weight of your core values behind you. Mm. Okay. So that's one. If you find yourself in a situation where um, that's not the case, that's why there's been very extreme um, and it, that's why Viet- Vietnam vets have a whole lot more trouble coping with um, what their war experience was and say World War One, World War Two people um, were because one came back to ridicule and disdain, the other came back to celebration and glory. Mm-hmm. So in, in another space, say it's a, say it's a childhood abuse thing, it's like there's no there's no there's no there's no way that that is ever acceptable. So there's no way any reasonable human being believes that having sex with a child is an acceptable thing. So there's nothing to put that in a file. There's no way to understand it. Then that leads into rage, acceptance, the, the treatment, feeling of it's not fair, what do I do with this, I want revenge. And then you've got to take all those things and you've got to sort all those things through. And so, again, it's about a series of constructs that you've got that, that you, or matrices that you build to cope with those things. And that's a challenge because in the midst of trying to unpack this and work through it, you're trying to establish your own matrix or construct to give it value, meaning, and a form that you can come to terms with it. And that's where it becomes really challenging because you're trying to unpack it and you're trying to build a place for acceptance for it. One uh particular young lady we were working with right now uh, just had recall of of an event when she was very young. Um, And I think probably the difference uh, in her case than John's, first of all, John's trauma was sustained, but also 
Um, at the point when she's having recall, she's in a, a happy marriage with someone that she loves and she has this sort of support network around her. Um, so when she did have her recall, um, I, I think she's less likely to have PTSD, even though something happened to her that is, you know, abhorrent and, and, and her brain would not know how to file it. But because she has this support network around her of yeah. folks who, who know what to do and how to handle it, um, she can work through and she can process it. Like her brain can, pro okay, this happened to me. It wasn't the right thing. And, and here, here are the steps we're taking. And so I think that she is less likely to develop PTSD from her experience. Yeah. And she's also been able to go to the police and have a conversation about the person who um, you know, interfered with her. So there's a sense of closure for her. Mm. And, and for, for a lot of us, particularly you know, guys my age, uh, you know, somebody, and guys, she had recall of it in her mid-20s. Most men have recall of stuff that happened to them around 40. Um, it's a it's a massive difference. And so by the time you're in 40, it's a totally different social construct around you that allows you to have these conversations. Male, 40, in the middle of a career, 20, newly married, female. They're two totally different, you worlds. know, worlds and societal yeah. um, levels of acceptance. Why is that? Is, do, is, Bro, is there know. like a reason that or, or could you could you speculate wildly? <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I probably could. <laughs> um, I think because as a man, you're so driven to perform, so driven to get a career established, you just get about doing it. And it's like I'm just – and you just block it and you're so focused on whatever this is. And by the time you get around 40, you realise that most of that was bullshit anyway and you're starting to relax <laughs> and starting to ask yourself some bigger questions about why have I spent the last 40 years of my life doing those things and that gives your brain time to slow down and go, okay, what are we going to – let's have a conversation. Mm. That's about the only – it's, it's how, how we manage to suppress memories for so long uh, is really just the brain's inability to process it. And so there are guys that, um, that deal with it earlier because they remember it earlier and, and, and there may be an environment where things come up and they have a conversation and all of a sudden they, they come down a path. And then, but in my case, that wasn't the case. My case, it was daffodils. Because when I was a kid, um, there was a neighbor who lived next door who planted daffodils. And every springtime, daffodils would come up. And I counted my years by daffodils. And if I saw daffodils as I walked to school, I knew I'd survive one more year. And I was 45 and I walked out of my, my shed um, where I was riding, uh, doing some prep. And I saw daffodils, and I remember thinking, "Aren't they beautiful?" Being so, and then everything like that came back. Just all the recall of what happened to me as a kid came back in a moment, and didn't stop for probably seven years. Total cluster, mate. <laughs> Total cluster. Totally fucked everything up. <laughs> crazy. I can't. I can't. Yeah, I can't even like get my head around. My, my wife at the time found me. Curled in a fetal position, sobbing. Um, what was it? I can't remember. They raped me. They raped me. Well, they abused. You know, look what they did to me. Look what they did to me. And I went from I went from traveling the world, two hundred thousand air miles a year or something, speaking in massive organizations, to a chronic stutter, 
a fear of flying, couldn't be in crowds, couldn't leave the home, um, unemployable, and lost everything. Whoa. Just in a moment. And when the, when the exactly, and when the, they filmed the documentary um, in 2015, so that was uh, six or seven years later, um, I was living, I just newly divorced, uh, living in a one bedroom apartment, and I had cinder blocks for a bed and a mattress on it. And that was it. That was life. Life had gone from making, you know, half a million dollars a year, traveling the world, blowing and going, doing everything I thought I was supposed to do to nothing, lost it all. Well, I think it's credit to um, to you that you've uh, managed to rebuild yourself from from that point. Um, so, like the last question I wanted to ask, and maybe this isn't even a great question, and we we don't have that much time. But, um, <laughs> um, bit like, uh, do you, do you think that anyone can ever be considered like cured, quote unquote, no. from PTSD, or is it just something that's that's always going to be there? You have to, and I think the worst thing you can do is put the pressure on yourself to find a miracle. Mm. Um, if you accept, you've got to accept yourself. And if you can accept yourself and accept that every day I can spend a day and find one tool to put in my toolbox to help me get better, then you will get better. You know, there's a couple of things that are very important. Diet is very important. Like um, red food coloring, you know, orange food coloring number five leads to anxiety and depression. I nearly committed suicide over a Snickers bar and some Cheetos, believe it or not. Real true, true story. Um, talk about it. Um, sugar leads to anxiety and depression. So exercise increases endorphins, GABA, all that sort of good stuff. Be aware of if, if I found myself really depressed, I'd look at what my diet was for the last 24 hours, and I would know I was depressed because of the music I listened to and the colour of my workout T-shirt. I'd go, dude. Okay, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I just want to wear, you know, Johnny Cash T-shirt. Yeah, fuck you. You know, I just want to wear a Johnny Cash T-shirt. That's okay. Okay, good. I'll wear a Johnny Cash T-shirt. But all of a sudden I go, no, maybe I'm not. Maybe I need to change this, you know. And I think that these are all important things that I've found for me that works for me. And that's what we try and do when we do recovery coaching is talk to people about it's not – most therapists, mate, they've never been through what you've been through. Now, they're really good, but if you can find a therapist who's been to war on the front line – they can talk to you about it. If you found a therapist who's been sexually abused, they can probably help you. But most of them haven't been. So they're good people with a good heart, but they've got no fucking clue. And the difference between therapy and coaching is understanding what do I have to do in order to take hold of my life and get it somewhere else, get it to where I want it to go. And as you taught, pointed out, when you have this 1.0 to 2.0, you don't really know where you want to go. And that's when it becomes just, it, it's just, you know, it's just a real challenge to try and work through that stuff. And I think as far as being a writer, I came to accept that probably six months ago. Wow. Just, so in our recovery coaching, we talk more in terms of management than being cured, yeah. you know, and how, how well are you managing yourself and what tools are you going to go yeah. after? And we've, we've developed some protocol that have kept people in remission for about six to nine months. So we've developed this with a bunch of doctors and different things. So when I say managing it, it's just that I never want to drop my guard so that I just go and eat a bunch of candy uh, because, you know, just because I'm, I can because I'm cured mm. um, because it's going, to, it's going to affect me in two or three days' time, put me in depression in a cycle that will take me probably two weeks to get out of. 
And I, I think having to be vigilant, and that's part of where we started the conversation, is personal responsibility. I don't eat candy, not because I don't like a Butterfinger or a Snickers or make Milo. I love Milo. Like Milo, God created Milo. And um, Violet Crumble, I miss a Violet Crumble, brother. I'm telling you, I love it. There's one little store at the road that sells pommy food, Violet Crumble. Oh, mate, oh, crunchy. Oh, focus. Yeah, sorry. So, but the, <laughs> the personal responsibility is you've got to drag that through and take that thing. And you've got to be prepared to do it because this is my, this is my mental health. That I'm talking about, and it impacts the one that I love. So that gives me extra onus on making sure that I do it well. Well, that is a beautiful note on which to end things. Um, John, Melissa, it's been yeah a pleasure, quite a ride. Um, so I really want to thank you for your time. Um, is there? Cheers, man. Appreciate it. No problem. Like, is there is there anything like specifically you want to point people towards? Like, I mean, I'll be linking your website and. Um, sure. like the the interviews that you sent me, but like is there anything else you wanna you wanna point people towards? No, mate, I just wanted to give them that code so you people that follow you can get something to help them. Yes. That's all. Yes. So <laughs> if people Yeah, so people can use the code gist fifty at the checkout uh to get fifty percent off the book. Which the ebook, yeah. Yeah. So I will put the link for that in the description below for people. Um so yeah. Uh Thanks a lot, man. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, nice meeting you. Hope you have fun in London. <laughs> I will. Oh, I am. <laughs> Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the video. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a comment for us in the comments below. Let me know what you thought and if you'd like to see more of this from the show. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>